0: Find out more at ReadingTheBibleLands.com Seeing the lands of the Bible with your own eyes will change the way you read the Bible for the rest of your life. It's absolutely true. See for yourself at WayneStyles.com slash tours. Hello and welcome to Live the Bible. My name is Wayne Styles, and this is the weekly podcast that helps you connect the Bible right to your life. In this two part episode, we're going to look at an intensely practical portion of the book of Mark. It's that part where Jesus tells us what to do when our want to is willing, but our can do is weak. In other words, we desperately want to be faithful and follow God, but we're just not strong enough to do it. How do we do it when we can't? Well, Jesus tells us. I'll be back in a bit with more, but for now, let's hear this week's podcast. I want to begin kind of with a confession. I hate drive-through windows. <laughs> I know that they're supposed to be a benefit to us, but when you sur- when you when you surrender speed for quality of food, okay. But when you surrender both, <laughs> that is absolutely unacceptable. And sometimes it's funny You know, with all the money that that we have and the technology that we have, I mean, we can can send a satellite, you know, out into space and bounce it off and talk to somebody in another country on our cell phones, but we can't make speakers at drive-through windows that are intelligible. (laughs) I'll never forget one time the girls and Kathy and I drove. We were traveling and, you know, we were all a little car tired and we drove up. In this no-name town on the way to Amarillo, it wasn't in Amarillo. It's a no-name town, so you don't you don't know where it is. But I'll tell you if you want to know later. But anyway, we drove up, and the, you know, it's Daddy. I want a uh, I want uh, mustard, and I, w- I want mayonnaise. Uh, I want cheese. I want pickles. And so not only are you dealing with the, the speaker that you can't really understand, you're dealing with, you know, special orders don't upset us all on the back seat and beside me. And so I got a little frustrated. <laughs> you know, so I and I think the last order included something like, you know, pickles and cheese. And we want pickles and cheese. We're going to my No pickles, pickles, and cheese. And finally, I kid you not, I yelled at the, at the speaker. I said, I said we want chickles and peas <laughs> And all across that town it got quiet. I looked over in the beside me in the car, and the girls just went. Ah, and they started laughing. The funny thing is, that was the only moment that I could understand what they said on the speaker, because the the person behind the speaker gave me a price, and she said, "Please pull forward." So whatever chickles and peas are, they I can tell you what they cost on the way to Amarillo. You know, since that. That funny incident. I've thought a lot about the spiritual life in relation to that, and how our walk with God is often we see it sort of as a drive-through. Um, we want instant spirituality right along with our instant mashed potatoes. We want to be holy in a hurry, and we don't like the time that it takes to um, to become holy. We don't like what it takes. Not just the time, but the struggle. Turn, if you would, with me to the Gospel of Mark, and let's continue our study in this great Gospel. There's no need to settle for French fries when God wants to give us filet mignon. Mark 14 is in chapter 14. Mark 14. And so far in Mark, we won't go through the whole thing, but you know, if you just glance at the text, you get a quick memory of where we stopped a couple of weeks ago with Mary of Bethany preparing Jesus for his burial, in Jesus' words, by her sacrificial gift of doing what she could, of, of, of preparing him by anointing him. With this uh, this spike nard, so in Mark fourteen at verse twelve now, we jump another day. If the first uh, eleven verses were Wednesday with a little bit of a flashback, now starting in chapter I mean in uh, verse twelve we are on Thursday because Mark tells us it's on the first day of unleavened bread when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed. His disciples said to him, "'Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover?' And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, "'Go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, "'The teacher says, "'Where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples?' And he himself will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Prepare for us there.'" The disciples went out, came into the city, and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover." Last time, we finished in verse uh, 10 and 11, looking at how Judas Iscariot was looking for an opportune time to hand Jesus over to the Jewish leaders. Remember back in verse 1, the Jewish leaders were ready to kill Jesus, but they didn't know how they would do it during the feast because they didn't want a riot. Judas provided them the solution. He, one of the 12, would betray Jesus at an opportune time. And an opportune time would include an opportune place away from the crowd where people couldn't see it. What better place than that night in the upper room? which is probably why when Jesus uh, sent to make preparations, he didn't include Judas in the the program. It says he sent two of his disciples. Luke 22, verse 8, tells us that that was Peter and John. Jesus sends Peter and John ahead, and he gives them very specific instructions to prepare a place to prepare the Passover where they can eat that night. So Judas is still in the dark. He's still looking for the opportune time, waiting for that moment where he can betray Jesus. Jesus sends two unnamed disciples. Luke tells us who they are. But I don't know if this sort of rings a bell to you, but Jesus also, earlier in the Passion Week, in fact, it was on uh, Palm Sunday, Jesus sent two other unnamed disciples ahead to prepare for something else. You remember that? Right, exactly. It was on the Mount of Olives, or at Bethphage, which is on the back side of the Mount of Olives, preparing for the donkey. He sent two of them ahead to get the donkey. And once again, we're told that he sent two of them ahead to prepare for something that Jesus had prepared for ahead of time. The repetition of these events is significant, and its lessons for us are also significant. Jesus sends two disciples ahead, to experience a pre-arranged meeting with those that they would have otherwise not known in order to serve Jesus in some way to prepare for his coming. You know, the, the principle that we can pull from that is pretty simple, and yet at the same time it's very profound, and it gives us, in fact, a lifelong perspective because Jesus has done the same for us. Now, we don't know the specifics, but we can look at this passage as well as other scripture to realize that Jesus has prearranged a lot of events in our lives too. We're very familiar with Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. That's the text that says, By grace we're saved through faith, this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. But then verse 10 comes right after verses 8 and 9. I know that's profound, but that's the way it works. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared ahead of time, that he prepared beforehand. So we have from Paul's pen the principle that we see applied here as well in Mark 14 that God has preordained good works in our lives. He, is not sim- he doesn't save us by the good works we do. We know that from verses Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We're saved not because of works, but by grace, but for the purpose of good works to follow. In fact, those good works are not just ours to figure out. They're ours to follow. They're ours to do because Jesus has prearranged them. He is, the Lord has prearranged them ahead of time that we should walk in them. I love the story of Ruth, you know, where Ruth goes back to Bethlehem with uh, her mother-in-law. They've all lost their husbands, they're widows. They're trying to eke out a living for themselves. And Ruth says, why don't I go and try and glean in a field? And so she goes and she takes the initiative. She goes and she gleans in a field. And the text tells us in Ruth 2, verse 3, it says, she happened to come to the field of Boaz. And the Hebrew text there says her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz. And the clear implication there is that our chances are God's choices. The same is true here in Mark 14. The same is true in Ephesians 2.10. The same is true in our lives. That what seems like coincidence in our lives is instead God's prearranged events, that we may walk in them. I love Psalm 23, where it talks at the very end, David says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. If you look at the perspective of that that psalm, he talks about what's ahead of him, he talks about what's beside him, and then he talks about what's behind him. And what's behind him is God's goodness and mercy. Now, when you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, it doesn't feel like God's goodness and mercy is beside you. His comfort is often there. But it takes looking back. It takes looking back and saying, hey, what do you know, goodness and mercy, they're following me. It takes looking back sometimes for us to see God's prearranged sovereign working in our lives. Right now, this morning, you have had conversations with people that may prove to be uh, life-changing. You don't know. How many times have significant events in your life turned a corner by a chance conversation, or by a a friend of a friend happened to mention something. And turns out, only in hindsight can you look back and realize God was in that. The reality is God's in everything, except occasionally he he opens our eyes to recognize it. Well, that's what he's doing here. And the fact that this is repeated in the text, that he sent two unnamed disciples for a prearranged event in order to serve Jesus because he's coming, is a very similar principle in our lives. He does the same thing, the very same thing. We need to live our lives by faith in God's sovereignty. We're not just bouncing from event to event. We are following his leading. And if we are sensitive and patient, he will lead us where he wants to take us. But so often we want the fast food. We don't want to wait. God is such a slow waiter. Have you noticed Such a slow waiter. But the food is always impeccable when it finally does arrive. When you go to Jerusalem today, you'll go to what's called the Western Hill. It's also called, sort of a misnomer biblically, Mount Zion. And you'll see the beautiful Dormition Abbey. And right below the Dormition Abbey is a place called the Cynical. Uh, It's not spelled like you think, Cynical, in the sense of like that. The Cynical is C-E-N. A-C-L-E. It's from the Latin word sine, which means supper. The cynical is the place of the Last Supper. It's the place of the upper room. And if you look at a harmony of the Gospels, it's pretty amazing what Mark leaves out. I mean, Mark is brief. He's to the point. He's very action-packed. But he leaves out a lot. And John, writing his Gospel, puts in a lot. If you notice, John's uh, recording of what happened in the upper room is longer than anybody else because he includes the great upper room discourse, which Barnabas taught us from last week in John 15 about uh, not being separated from Christ. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But one thing Mark is sure to include, look at verse 17. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. Okay, so now Judas knows where it is. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be grieved and to say to him, one by one, Surely not I. I love those scenes in Western movies where, you know, it's sort of a saloon scene, and everyone's playing cards, and everyone's drinking tea. <laughs> and there's dancing, you know, and everyone's celebrating and having fun, and the bad guy walks in. And all of a sudden, it gets quiet. <sighs> and the piano player stops playing, you know, and turns over and looks. And you hear nothing but the ceiling fan just kind of... Ch- 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 ch. That's what I picture happen here in the upper room when Jesus said, one of you will betray me. The piano player stops playing. All you hear is a ceiling fan as, as they look around to each other. Did he just say what I think he just said? One of us, one of the 12, will betray him? And then immediately their thought is, well, I, I hope it's not so-and-so. Their, their thought is, surely it's not me. I think it's interesting they didn't say, I've been wondering about Judas this whole time. <laughs> they don't. They don't have a clue that it's Judas. In fact, in another gospel, Peter motions to John and says, Psst, ask him who it is. No one has a clue. Uh, but Jesus and Judas. But their question is amazing. Surely not I. Interesting word, Surely. If it's surely not I, then why ask? If, if it's surely not me that did, that's going to do it, then why even ask the Lord? It's surely not I. These great men had a great self-confidence, as we'll see more next week. I remember hearing Howard Hendricks at Dallas Seminary tell us students that he was part of a of a, what was it, a survey or a study that was done of former graduates of the seminary who had fallen morally. And he said there were many reasons, many different situations, but there was one common theme among every single one of the people who fell. And that was their perspective was, I never thought this would happen to me. Surely not I. So we need to be very careful when, when we walk through life as we, as we hear about people who have fallen and even, I don't know, when we think about our own potential for it and realize every one of us can do it. I am no exception to anyone else. I am no exception. And the crazy thing is, it could happen today if God's grace is not sustaining us, and if we are not leaning on him versus leaning on ourselves, which is what the apostles were doing, as we'll see next week. Mark doesn't say so here, but Jesus dismissed Judas to go and do quickly what he intended to do. The other disciples probably would have assumed this meant something to something financial, to take care of some financial matter, because Judas took care of the money purse. Actually, it was a financial matter. Judas had 30 silver coins to collect, because now he knew where Jesus was, assumed that he was going to be there for a while, and he had a place, an opportune time to go and to get the authorities and bring them back to the upper room. Well, let's keep reading. Verse 22. Notice Judas is gone before the Lord's Supper is instituted. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it. And gave it to them and said, Take, take it, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. He gave them a cup. And notice it says they all drank from it. Keep your hand here in Mark 14 and turn back a few chapters to Mark 10. And I want to remind you of something that we read a couple of months back that we studied. Mark chapter 10, verses 37 and following. James and John had this request of Jesus. Remember this? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit at my right or my left, this is not mine to give. It is for those for whom it has been prepared. Hey everyone, Wayne here. How'd you like to see the places where Jesus walked? For real? Well, you can. And so much more. Registrations are already well underway for my upcoming tour to Israel and Egypt in the fall of 2020. And there's still room for you. Going to the Bible will change the way you read the Bible. I'm certain of it. Check out all my upcoming tours at waynestyles.com tours. And now, back to the message. It is for those for whom it has, been, it has been prepared. The cup Jesus used as a metaphor back in chapter 10, now you can turn back to 14, is what he is referring to here, again, this cup of suffering when he says this, he had taken a cup and notice he gave it to them, and he told them back in chapter ten, "You will drink from it." They all drank from it physically, because verse twenty-three tells us. But we also know uh, from tradition, church history, that they all drank from it uh, in a, in a, in a meta. I what do you say? As an example, as well, um, because not only was it a cup of suffering that they drank. There at the Last Supper, but it was the cup of suffering they drank in their lives. Every one of these apostles went to a martyr's death. You could debate whether or not uh, the apostle John did, but some of the things that he endured were very, very much uh, suffering. They indeed, indeed would drink from this cup. And notice how Jesus refers to the cup. He says, this is the cup of the covenant. This is the, the cup of the covenant. I don't know if you remember the scene from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. I know there's been like five Indiana Jones movies, but this was the one with Sean Connery where they were chasing the Holy Grail. Remember, the Holy Grail is the cup from the Last Supper. You know, at least that's what, that's what it's called. The Holy Grail is the, the cup from the Last Supper. And the thought in the movie was if you find the cup, then you found the secret to eternal life because you know whoever drinks from the cup, you have eternal life. And isn't that what Jesus said? I know it's terrible theology, but hang with me because it makes a really good, a really good uh, scene. Well, you remember the scene where they come up to Petra, which again is, but anyway, they come up to Petra and they go, they walk into the facade, and then there's this cave, and they find eventually they find in there this old crusader who is guarding the Holy Grail. And walks in there, and they have found it. They've found the Holy Grail. The problem is there's like 40 grails on the table, and they don't know which one it is. And so the, the crusader, who obviously knows because he's been drinking it and been staying alive since the crusades, he says, you, you, you need to choose wisely. Because if you don't choose wisely, something bad's going to happen when you drink out of the wrong cup. And the, the bad guy who you want to drink the, drink the wrong cup, says, well, how do I know which one it is? And one of the archaeologists comes over and says, this is it. And it was this beautiful, ornate cup. And the bad guy says, yes, it's even more beautiful than I thought it would be. And he drank from it. And then all the special effects kick in. And, and I won't give you the details except to say that the guy becomes a pile of ash on the floor after screaming a horrible shriek and the Crusader, in the best line in the movie, says, "He chose poorly." <laughs> Isn't that a great line. Talk about understatement. Well, then, so what's the right cup? Well, of course, Indiana Jones, being the good Christian that he was, knew what the right cup was, and it wasn't one of these ornate cups. It was this old, beat-up little, you know, uh, mud, mud cup. what do you call those ceramic type cup. I'm sorry if I've offended the arts and crafts people of our class. But it wasn't this ornate it wasn't this ornate gold cup. It was this old ugly cup. And Indiana Jones says that's the cup of a carpenter, and turns out it was. And happy ending, everyone lives forever drinking out of the mud cup. They chose wisely. But what I love about that scene is it's so us. It's so us. When we, There's two cups. There's the cup that we want to drink from. There's the one that we want it to be, following Christ. Turns out we end up ash on the floor. But then there's the one we don't want. It's not good-looking. It's not glamorous. It kind of leaves a film on your mouth when you drink from it. But that's the cup of Christ. Notice Jesus mentions both of these cups metaphorically here in the text. Look at verse, um, it's in here somewhere, verse uh, 24, uh, 23, and when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, or of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say, I will never drink the fruit of the vine again until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. There are the two cups. There's the cup of suffering that he he is about to drink, metaphorically, that they all drank from, literally. And there's the cup of the kingdom, verse 25, where he says, I will drink it again in the kingdom. And so between the first time that he drank the cup And the the next time he drinks the cup, in the meantime, Jesus is a teetotaler. No more wine until the kingdom. Notice those two cups. There's the cup of suffering. There's the cup of glory. These are the two cups. And the disciples clearly want the cup of glory. And frankly, we do too. This whole book, as we've traced through Mark, has constantly been reining the disciples back in as they've constantly been pushing for the kingdom, and Jesus says, first comes the cross. And he's told them several times in chapters 8 through 10, I'm going to die, I'm going to be resurrected, and then later comes the kingdom. But they didn't get it. And I think our challenge is very much the same thing. We want the cup of glory. We don't want the cup of suffering. Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant. What covenant is he talking about? Well, I let slip when I inserted the word new a second ago, but Luke tells us in chapter 22, verse 20, the blood of the new covenant. So he's not referring to the old covenant, and you would think he is because the Passover meal was, was looking back to the Passover where the old covenant or the Old Testament began. But he doesn't say that. He is referring to the covenant, Luke tells us it's the new covenant, which is poured out for many. What does that mean? Well, in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse, I think it's about 34, the new covenant is said to bring uh, the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of sins. And so when Jesus says, this is the blood of the covenant, meaning the new covenant, now all of a sudden we realize That's the forgiveness of sins. How does the forgiveness of sins come about? Jesus says, My blood is poured out for many. In fact, Matthew even adds the phrase, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The New Covenant. I don't know if you realize it, if you've thought about it, but our New Testament begins in the wrong place. We stick it before Matthew, we put it before Matthew, but that is not where it goes. Specifically speaking, what does testament mean? It means covenant. The New New Testament is the new covenant. That's what testament means, is a new covenant. So where did the new covenant begin? Jesus tells us it began with his shed blood. It begins at the cross. It begins at the end of the Gospels, not at the beginning of the Gospels. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to tear the flyleaf out of our Bible, and put it before the beginning of Acts. We don't have to start a church with our own denomination, Church of the Correct Flyleaf. But we do need to keep in mind when Jesus says the New Covenant begins at the end of the Gospels, that means that the Gospels are still part of the Old Testament in our thinking. Now, we understand they're introducing the Messiah who ushers in the New Testament, New Covenant. So, obviously, it's fine. But... In our minds, we need to think, whenever you're reading the Gospels, think Old Testament. This is Old Testament. Because if Israel had accepted the Christ, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the kingdom would have come right in without, without any kind of a pause. But uh, that's not what happened, is it? We know that, the, uh, that there was an incredible pause. The story of God's kingdom on earth kind of sputtered to a stall, Here at the end of uh, when Christ was rejected, but then it gets a jump start once again. So when we read the Gospels, think Old Testament. Think Old Testament. Why is that helpful? Because when you're reading the Gospels and thinking not like a Christian in the sense of how does this apply to me and my Christian life in the 21st century, first we have to think how does this apply to a Jewish mindset? Because if you first understand what it means in the context of, of, a, of a reader of that day, then you can lift the timeless principle from it and apply it in our day. So let's do that for a second as we read through this text. The New Covenant. He says, this is my blood. The New Covenant is the looking forward to the, uh, the forgiveness of sins. This is my body. In the Old Testament, When someone would partake of a sacrifice, there were a number of sacrifices. There was the burnt offering, which was kind of the foundational offering, that had to be done first, and it was burnt whole. There was nothing saved. It was completely burnt. And it sort of laid the foundation for the restoration of your forgiveness of your sins. And then there were other offerings that were sometimes placed on top of that. One of them was the peace offering, or sometimes called the fellowship offering. And it was... A, a, a sacrifice that you ate, it was a barbecue, where you would go and you would put your your meat there on the, the the cooker, and while it was cooking, you would you would proclaim what the Lord has done in your life, and those that were around got to eat part of the sacrifice with you. The priest got to eat part of the sacrifice, which was representative that God was partaking with you, and then you got to eat it. So there was this. Fellowship, that peace offering represented that you were at peace with God, that all things were right. That's what the Lord's Supper is for, from a Christian perspective. The Passover, which has already been eaten at this point, represented ultimately Jesus being the last Lamb of God. But now after that, after that, he says, this is my body, do this in remembrance of me is a supper of fellowship. Many times, you know, as we partake of communion, you will hear our pastor say, if you are walking in the light, if you have, if you have accepted Christ and if you are walking in the light, meaning if you're, if you're in fellowship with God, then you can take part in the Lord's Supper. Otherwise, you need to get back in fellowship with God before you partake. And it's significant that Jesus asked Judas to leave before this because only Christians are to partake of the Lord's Supper as a memorial of Jesus' spilled blood and broken body. Only two ordinances Jesus gave us. One is to be done once at the beginning of your Christian life, that's baptism, and once, and the other is to be done repeatedly in your Christian life, and that's the Lord's Supper. One is to be done that basically says, I am a Christian, and the other is to be done repeatedly that says, I am a Christian who is in fellowship With God or as uh, again as Barnabas shared last week apart from me Jesus says you can do nothing that is why you must abide in him and remain in me and I remain in you apart from me you can do nothing Jesus is setting all this up to say not only do you need to believe in me but you need to walk with me and stay in fellowship with me Judas left to fetch the authorities And Judas would have brought them back to the upper room. But Jesus wasn't done with the faithful eleven. So notice what Mark tells us in verse 26. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So Jesus leaves, knowing that Judas is uh, back at square one, as it were. Uh, No doubt Jesus is buying himself a little time to spend with the faithful 11, and especially to spend with the Father in Gethsemane, which is what we'll look at next week. You know, it says they sang a hymn. Likely they sang from Psalms 115 to 118. Those psalms are the psalms that were sung after the Passover meal. And if you'll read through those psalms, it's amazing how many of those relate to the suffering of the Messiah, especially Psalm 118, which has been quoted a number of times already in Mark, um, if you just look back through your, through your margin at some of the places where, where Psalm 118 has been quoted, it's there. And I won't, I won't take the time to focus on that right now. But So they probably sung one of the Psalms, probably from maybe even Psalm 118, and they went out to Gethsemane. I don't know how many times we've sat in this class and had the blessing of hearing Dr. Toussaint teach. One of the blessed things that I love about when he taught is when he would stare at the clock and go, ah, and he realized he was only halfway done. Initially, and your handout says that we're going through verse 52, we're not. Don't worry, we're we're not. (laughs) We're going to stop right here and pick it up next time. But um, let me close with a story, a true story. When Kathy and I were building our house where we currently live right now, in the building process of the of the house, you know, before you get the doors on, it's open. And people can go in and walk around. You know, you've done that. You look at people's houses as they're being built. Well, and animals do that as well, <laughs> including cats. And so we, one day, we... Uh, uh, we were. I heard something scurrying upstairs. We didn't know what it was. And I told Kathy, and she and I figured it was rats, because, you know, we're not cat people. We didn't even think cats. So I'm thinking there are rats up there. So I go up with rat poison, and, uh, and I'm, you know, down in the room where the rafters are up there, and there's, like, sheetrock and you know a 9 foot fall if i go through the sheetrock so i'm very careful on the rafters there and i'm about to put the rat poison down where i heard the scurrying and out jumps a cat now when you're thinking rat and out jumps something as long as your forearm i screamed <laughs> i really did it was a it was a full on scream but it my only boast is that I didn't scream like a woman. <laughs> boy, it scared me. And I thought, oh, it's cats. It's not rats. But now we thought, well, how do we get cats out? That's harder than rats. <laughs> and so what could you do? So it turns out that cat went up there and found a nice, safe place to have more cats. And, and about a week later, we were back at the house looking at the progress of it, and we heard in the wall... I don't know, you know, it's bad enough just to hear the constant meowing, but to walk in your house and just, it sounds like it's everywhere, and and you don't know where it is. And finally, we found in this wall, down at the bottom of this wall, they were in the wall. The kittens had fallen down from the top and down. They were in the sheetrock, and obviously they were trapped. So the only thing we could do, I punched a hole, I cut a hole in the sheetrock and reached down and grabbed them. There's like four or five of them. And the last one was a fighter. He clawed the tar out of my hand. And I thought, what does he want me to do, leave him in there? I'll just put him back. And I thought about that cat as I took care of it, getting it out. But you know what, that cat is like us. The one who has reached down to save us. We claw and fight the whole time. But he loves us so much that he's willing to do that, even though we don't understand that he has our best interests in mind. The apostles were floored that Jesus would say that one of them would betray. They were floored that Jesus said he was going to die. And they're going to be even floored more when we look next week at the prediction of all of them falling away and Peter denying But it's important that we realize that all of this is in the hand of our sovereign God. Just as Jesus sent Peter and John ahead to prepare the way for the upper room, as he sent two disciples ahead to prepare for the donkey, so he has prepared ahead of time in our lives a lot of situations that we don't understand and we want to claw and bite uh, the Lord. But he's in control. Maybe you've come today and you are like that cat. And you don't uh, you don't want to surrender to Jesus Christ, and you fought him all your life. I urge you to think twice about going another day with an uncertain eternity. Because the great news is Jesus has died on your on the cross for your sins and for my sins, and they are many. He has shed his blood, as he said, "It's poured out." Verse twenty four for many. And that includes you. If you've never placed your faith in the one who's died for your sins, here's the good news. He paid for every one of your sins on the cross. If you will believe it and trust in him and not your good works, all of your sins are paid for. And you have the wonderful hope of looking forward to when Jesus comes again for the kingdom. Uh, Ultimately, he will bring us back for the kingdom. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're thankful as we look at this text that Jesus is in control. The disciples shrug their shoulders and are in dismay at his words, and oftentimes in our lives we are too. We drive up to the fast food window and want it all now. We're like the cat clawing in the wall. We don't understand and we reject you but thanks for your love that you reached down and brought us up even though we were fighting it. Thanks for your persistent love that sent Jesus to the cross. And, Lord, we pray for any who are here today, for whatever reason, your sovereign hand has brought them to this moment of hearing the gospel yet again and the opportunity to trust in their Savior. We pray that they would. And for those of us who have already made that decision, give us a mindset day to day that you have prepared good works for us to walk in, that we're not just meandering from this event to that event, but you have prepared good works that we might walk in them. Give us eyes to see them and help us do that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Live the Bible great reminder we have that we have a traitor in the gates that we have to watch out for. That overconfident self that thinks that we can live life without God. But we can't, can we? Well, next time Jesus takes us to the Garden of Gethsemane and he tells the disciples how to stand strong and then Jesus models how to rely on God for strength. You don't want to miss the next episode. Until then, live the Bible. My friend, I hope you will read the Bible in 2024, and I'd love for us to read it together, seeing the places where it all happened. Check it out now at readingthebiblelands.com.